last time on Bad Watchdog. Inspectors General fill a void that occurs when our system of checks and balances is not working. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. New questions about the missing Secret Service text from around January 6th. According to multiple sources, the embattled Homeland Security Inspector General first learned of those missing messages more than a year before he then alerted the January 6th committee. Suddenly, Kafari's office stopped answering questions. Last episode, you heard about the Department of Homeland Security's watchdog, Joseph Kafari, and his decision to wait more than a year to notify Congress about the Secret Service deleting text messages from January 6th. And while that decision was both confusing and troubling for me and my colleagues, it wasn't entirely surprising. Because it wasn't the first time that we had actually heard about Kafari shooting down staff proposals. Proposals that would hold agencies within the Department of Homeland Security accountable. It wasn't even the first time that he and his inner circle avoided putting the Secret Service under a critical light. To take us back to the beginning, I flew out to D.C. to meet with the investigators who uncovered it all. Nick Schwellenbach, who you met in episode one, and Adam Zagarin. We've talked on the phone. It's great to see you. Yeah, it's been a while. We're all here meeting at the office to sit down so that they can both walk me through everything that they've uncovered over the last few years. So what are we going to do? So first, I feel like we should maybe talk about... Who am I? Where am I? What am I doing? (laughs) Let me quickly do a proper introduction. So Nick is lovely. He's kind of no-nonsense, even though we have debated about the most recent Star Wars trilogy. I do have some hot takes. Anyways, he has been with Pogo on and off for over a decade. He's received several awards, and pretty much everyone that I've talked to for this podcast has noted how much they admire his work. He's uncompromising when it comes to protecting his sources, as all investigative journalists should be. I don't want to get into when I talk to people when. Okay. Adam is the other half of this dynamic duo. It went on and on. I mean, it's like, confusing. if you got an edit like this, you would not be happy. Yeah. <laughs> when I was first introduced to him, I was told he once smoked cigars with a dictator. Nobody could quite remember who. Adam just sort of retired. I say sort of because there seemingly are constant new developments in this Kafari saga, and Adam keeps jumping at the chance to aid Nick in the investigation. He's worked for Pogo for 13 years, and before that, he was a senior correspondent for Time magazine. He's been a commentator on CNN and Fox News and CBS. All right, well, so I think we should maybe start with um, how you all started digging into Kafari. All right, I'll take that one, at least initially. In the spring of 2021, thanks to congressional sources, I had a lot of extensive conversations with Office of Inspector General insiders at the Department of Homeland Security. I probably talked to a number of people collectively for eight, nine, 10 hours, and someone 
said sort of offhand that Kafari had killed off an effort to probe what had happened at Lafayette Square on June 1st, 2020. Just north of Lafayette Square, which is just north of the White House. So essentially, these police you see right here, and they're advancing again. Yes. Now there's just a lot of violence erupting. Ben, back up, back up. Tear gas everywhere. We're going to get off to the side here. Who can forget the video? Police gassing and pushing away protesters who were demanding racial justice. Jaw dropped. Just seemed like such an obvious thing for an inspector's general office to do. And Lafayette Square was kind of such a big deal to people in the, in the D.C. area. And it was a huge deal at the time. People across the political spectrum said as much. The way that day transpired, it looked like protesters were cleared, potentially for the purpose of allowing President Trump to cross Lafayette Square over to St. John's Church for a photo op. In this episode, we're going to take a look back at that historic and troubling day in June 2020, as well as the moments over the past few years where Kafari rejected proposals from his staff to investigate. We will examine whether Kafari's decisions may have been politically motivated and how they've had a lasting impact on the credibility of his watchdog office. This is a podcast about finding the truth and holding people accountable, which is essentially, and not coincidentally, the work of an inspector general. I'm Marin Macklis, and from the Project on Government Oversight, this is Bad Watchdog. In the summer of 2020, protests were organized in cities across America in outrage over the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. There have been so many Black people killed by the police, and this wasn't the first time protesters took to the streets or the first time Black Lives Matter protesters were met with violent tactics by law enforcement. But what was different that summer was the size and scope of government-sponsored violence. States across the country were deploying the National Guard. Protesters were met with rubber bullets, tear gas, and more. Hi, it's Hi. so nice to nice meet to you. you. I'm Marin. Radia. Nice to meet you. I'm meeting up with Radia Buchanan in Lafayette Square. Radia attended most of the protests that summer. I haven't been here a really long time. I would imagine. Yeah, when was the last time you've been you were here? Right here? Probably that day. Really? Yeah. Definitely that day. Tell me like what your mindset was like on that day and kind of in the days before. It was just like a an overwhelming feeling of like why is there no accountability? Why do you get to do whatever you want to us and no one says anything? And so it felt like the only thing that you could do was either like sit back and suck it up and just like deal with it internally, which I think a lot of people do on a day-to-day -day basis, or just like go and just be seen. I think this was probably one of the first times in a really long time that something that was happening, and that happens a lot in the United States to black people, was seen on a global scale. We 
we're sitting in front of uh, St. John's Church. Mm-hmm. Did you know on that day that that was that Trump was going to be walking across? No. Let's go back to June 1st, 2020. Protesters were filling the streets that surrounded Lafayette Square, which happens to be just across the street from the White House. At the time, it wouldn't be clear, but there were several law enforcement agencies watching the crowd. There was the National Guard, the U.S. Park Police, the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, and the Secret Service. And so, like, from here... 16th and H. Radia is showing me exactly where she was. Yes. Yeah. So from here all the way back, it was like a dense crowd, so you couldn't even really see them unless you were Over. up at the front. Yeah, at the front. Um, and then there were officers lining the sides. A lot of protesters had their phones out on that day. And the footage is striking, especially at the front of the crowd. There's a line of police with shields. They appear to be with the Park Police and the Arlington County Police Department. Behind them, more police. Some of them appear to be with the military. There's also a line of police on horseback. And you see some protesters are trying to de-escalate this growing tension that seemingly came out of nowhere. They're kneeling, putting their hands up, at one point, they start chanting, you are the threat. I think we were saying, you know, like, say his name, Black Lives Matter, no justice, no peace, all of the regular stuff. It was very peaceful. There was no, like I said, the night before, there were a few kids, like, being agitators. There was none of that happening yeah. at all. And then out of nowhere, you kind of see, because we're at, not at the front of the crowd, we're, like, in the middle towards yeah. the back. You see people kind of, like, moving backwards. You couldn't hear anything. Like, so I know they say that the, the officers had given warnings, you have to go or anything like that. Didn't hear any of that. Now, did the people at the front of the crowd hear that? I don't know. Yeah. But here in the middle, so I, I don't know how many feet that is. So it's kind of a block. It's like a block. Yeah. So a block away, you didn't hear any of that. And then you started to hear bangs. And like, so then people like got really scared and started like running backwards. You saw people with like their shirts and stuff over their faces because it was tear gas. At this point, it's kind of like you just hear bang after bang. People are like crying, throwing up. It looks crazy. We're in a war zone. The quick atmosphere change was very bizarre. And to be honest, chilling to watch. To use Radia's words, it went from a peaceful protest to a war zone. It felt like the police violence used that day came out of nowhere. Afterwards, there was a lot of speculation that Trump and his inner circle may have had something to do with clearing the crowd so violently. During those protests that day, President Trump made a defiant declaration. I am your president of law and order. Then he made his way across Lafayette Park. Is that your Bible? It's a Bible. Trump held up that Bible at St. John's Church. The U.S. Park Police was skewered, accused of using force so the president could stage a photo op. Radia was a part of a lawsuit seeking damages from the federal government because of the use of force on that day. The original complaint reads, quote, 
This case is about the president and attorney general of the United States ordering the use of violence against peaceful demonstrators who are speaking out against discriminatory police brutality that's targeted at Black people. You either become consumed by the systemic racism and, like, injustice that you face on a daily basis, or you have to act like it doesn't exist in order to survive. Uh, And so we don't get to take a break from that. We still have to deal with the things that are unfair on a daily basis, and the people responsible are not held accountable. No one has had to, like, really pay for what they've done in any way. It's hard to look at the brutal use of force that took place on that day and not think about President Trump's own words during this time. His words about suppressing the movement. You have to get much tougher. You have to dominate. If you don't dominate, you're wasting your time. They're going to run over you. You're going to look like a bunch of jerks. And it's a movement that if you don't put it down, it'll get worse and worse. And now the president's own security is squaring off with protesters. As Nick said earlier, it was a widespread sentiment across the political spectrum that the violence used against these protesters was deeply troubling. Like January 6th, this was a moment where we needed someone to investigate what happened. Was all of the use of force really necessary? Who ordered it? How did things get so excessive? This is exactly the type of incident where we need a watchdog. And I know that that's the case, because the events of that day were investigated by the Department of Interior's watchdog, who oversees the U.S. Park Police. That review found that the Park Police had been planning to clear Lafayette Square before they learned the president would be there. But it also found they didn't effectively communicate with the crowd or with the Secret Service. A new report tonight about last year's violent clash between police and protesters in Lafayette Square near the White House. The operational plan was to say three times over what is basically like a megaphone to the crowd, disperse, disperse, disperse. The problem is that that megaphone wasn't really appropriate for the crowd size. Now, there are questions about the Interior's report. But it does provide more clarity around what happened that day, and it makes recommendations for how the agency could do a better job in the future. And what about a report from the Department of Homeland Security's watchdog, Joseph Kafari? How would the Secret Service do better? Well, we don't know. There was no review. It was very clear that career staff had proposed this review. Nick mentioned one of the reasons Kafari gave for shooting down this proposal was because the Secret Service could conduct an after-action report. So, in other words, examine itself. These insiders I talked to, as well as external experts, said this is exactly the kind of review that you want an independent watchdog to conduct. It's politically charged. It's sensitive. Here we have the Secret Service, which is very close with the White House, 
And this matter led to a lot of criticism of the White House. So this is the kind of review that you usually don't want an agency to do into itself. The role of the Secret Service in this matter is not like peripheral or incidental or it can easily be covered by others or mm -hmm. something else. Had the president not been there, it's difficult to imagine that any of this would have you know, happened in the way that it did. This is a case where the Secret Service and what was going on is really fundamental to the whole episode. Yeah. So that is why Mr. Kafari's refusal to take up this matter struck Nick and myself as being something that you, you couldn't just say, oh, well. Uh, yeah. You really had to say, why? This tip about Kafari's refusal to look more closely at the actions of the Secret Service at the Lafayette Square protest. Well, there was no way for them to know it at the time. But this was the tip of the iceberg of what Nick and Adam would later uncover. This person then said, well, that's not the only one where Kafari inexplicably rejected his own career staff's proposal to review the Secret Service uh, in connection with a, you know, highly charged political matter involving Trump. From a rejection to look at the Secret Service's compliance with COVID protocols. More than 130 Secret Service officers have been either infected with COVID or they're quarantining because of the exposure. To his refusal to investigate whether the appointment of DHS acting secretary, Chad Wolf, was even legal. Wolf held the role of acting secretary for 14 months, despite several lawsuits challenging the legality of his appointment. To other decisions about investigations we will explore later on that are frankly far more chilling. What you have to know about being an inspector general, how to perform your duties, understanding the concept of, of independence. This is Gordon Hedell again. Because of his time as the watchdog for the Department of Labor and Department of Defense, he knows firsthand about the importance of understanding independence as the inspector general. You have to understand what it means to be non-political. The law says that Inspectors general are selected on the on, on the basis of being nonpartisan. If somehow you don't understand that, you can get yourself into a great deal of trouble. When there are questions about these high-profile incidents like January 6th and Lafayette Square, the choice to not investigate, well, Gordon says that will create more problems and more questions around independence. There were allegations. There were questions about the Secret Service's role. And this is where I do have an opinion. And that is, is that when those questions arise, there has to be a review, an investigation, to determine whether or not everything was done properly and that the Secret Service performed their jobs properly. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the bottom line is that because there are questions about that day and what happened, there should have been a review. Exactly. Exactly. But then, but then, Marin, when you put that together with all this other smoke about, you know, the Secret Service and the DHS Inspector General, where the, where the DHS Inspector General did not follow through, 
you have to then wonder, what, what's the reasons for this? I mean, here's the thing. It did look like Kafari was protecting Trump. But as you've heard, Nick and Adam have been digging into Kafari's decision since the spring of 2021. And the truth is, he continued to drag his feet on critical investigations even after Trump left office. Take, for instance, another use of force incident. But this time, it's under Biden. Back in September of 2021, Customs and Border Patrol agents used force on Haitian migrants near the border in Del Rio, Texas. And photos from that incident went viral. We're seeing an increasingly heartbreaking situation unfold there in Del Rio. The next image might be tough to look at. One agent was caught on camera swinging his horse strap at one of the migrants. In these images, you see patrol agents on horseback with these straps that look like whips, chasing Black migrants, grabbing their shirts, visibly yelling. It's imagery that feels very reminiscent of slavery. These images hit me like a ton of bricks. There was widespread condemnation of this incident. Lawmakers on both sides of the aisle criticized the Biden administration's handling of the situation. This administration has been caught between its values and the practicalities on the ground when it comes to immigration. As for the agent on the horse, that is not something that I've ever encountered in my seven years of covering this agency. And I think that they definitely need to answer questions about what's happening there. You said on the campaign trail that you were going to restore the moral standing of the U.S., that you were going to to immediately end Trump's assault on the dignity of immigrant communities. Given what we saw at the border this week, have you failed in that promise? And this is happening under your watch. Do you take responsibility for the chaos that's unfolding? It's outrageous. I promise you those people will pay. They will be an investigation underway now, and there will be consequences. I think the Del Rio incident is like a microcosm of how effective Border Patrol is at just waiting out a crisis and sweeping something under the rug. Sarah Turberville is the director of the Constitution Project here at POGO. That's a team on our staff that advocates for constitutional rights when the government exercises power in the name of national security and domestic policing. So... Not surprisingly, her team spends a lot of time on the Department of Homeland Security. About 15,000 Haitian migrants were gathered near or under this international bridge in in Del Rio, in the crossing between uh, the U.S. and Mexico. And these were folks that had been escaping horrible conditions in Haiti following not long ago the assassination of their president— And then, of course, the conditions having deteriorated year after year following a devastating earthquake of 2010. But soon, Border Patrol calls in the Texas Department of Public Safety to try to disperse people who had kind of crowded under the bridge. And it was at that point that the rest of the world learned what was going on there. Imagine what happens when cameras aren't rolling. Cameras were rolling and this happened. It was, to me, very emblematic of the impunity of the many incidences of use of force and 
assault shootings and vehicle chases and property damage that the Border Patrol has committed. Rarely do we find out if anyone's even been investigated, let alone disciplined. There's, you know, these photos that were splashed all over the world. And you had the president of the United States saying people will immediately be held accountable. And, the, the, you know, when Secretary Mayorkas saying the same thing. It wouldn't be until almost a year later that we would receive a report of investigation from Customs and Border Protection's own Internal Affairs Department. The conclusion? While the agent's behavior was found to be inappropriate, there was no evidence that the migrants were struck that day. But none of the migrants were interviewed for the investigation, only the agents involved. About two months after the photos from Del Rio surfaced, DHS announced Kafari's office would not investigate the officer's use of force. Exactly like the Secret Service's involvement in Lafayette Square. This is yet again another example of a violent incident involving agencies under his jurisdiction. And yet again, another investigation that this watchdog refused to pursue. It kind of seems that this would be a really good opportunity for the Department of Homeland Security's IG to step in and have, like, a more independent look at what happened. The IG is the best suited to root out systemic problems. And there is no shortage of examples of abuses that warrant a thorough and systemic review but he's just utterly failing in this fundamental role as, you know, someone who's supposed to provide an independent review of, of abuse. For the next few episodes, we will be looking at that abuse that Sarah just mentioned. Not just abuse of power, but abuse of people and take a closer look at Customs and Border Protection, how it's the largest law enforcement agency in the country, and how it continues to go unchecked. Thanks to Gafari. What we heard is that DHS law enforcement employees who DHS had confirmed had abused their domestic partners, yet continued to serve in their law enforcement roles with their government-issued guns and their badges. If you don't present the facts, it gives this appearance of being a cover-up. So now you go to, what are you hiding? It's a cover-up. I think if if members of the public sort of really understood the complicity of some of our leaders in giving cover to this kind of abuse and misconduct, that they would they'd be shocked and appalled. That's next time on Bad Watchdog. Follow Bad Watchdog wherever you get your podcasts. Bad Watchdog is a production of investigations and research at the Project on Government Oversight. It's written, produced, and hosted by me, Marin Macklis, and based on investigations by Nick Schwellenbach and Adam Zagrin. Additional research by Julian McClure. Edited by Julia Delacroix 
and Brandon Brockmeyer. Fact-checking by Amaya Phillips and Neil Gordon. This episode was mixed by Natalie Jablonski. Our theme music was written and recorded by Will Wrigley. Pogo's director of investigations and research is Brandon Brockmeyer. Pogo's editorial director is Julia Delacroix. Find out more about our work to investigate and improve the federal government at www.pogo.org.